Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. And have you ever thought about why Jesus kept telling people to keep his identity a secret? Wasn't that like, why? What what was that all about? I'm going to talk today to Dr. Leighton Flowers about that and other topics. Uh, Leighton is the director of, of evangelism and apologetics for Texas Baptist. He was named that in 2018. You can learn more about him at his website, soteriology101.com. Leighton, welcome back. Thank you, Bill. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks. You know, I have always thought about that kind of that messianic secret that that was, don't mm-hmm. say anything to anybody yet. And I, I always thought, well, how do I, how do I make sense of all that? Yeah, it was confusing to me too, uh, especially my early years as a Christian. I, you know, you often come across certain passages that just don't seem to fit the the normal narrative of Scripture. And you're always kind of led to believe that Jesus is trying to make his himself known to everybody, and right. you know, and 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 you know, why would he tell uh, you know his own disciples? For example, uh, Matthew sixteen twenty. Um, this is the famous passage where uh, you know he's Peter declares, "You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God," and he actually at the end of all of that, instead of saying, "Hey, go tell everybody about this," he actually says in verse twenty, he warned the disciples that they should tell no one. Uh, that who he was, and and to keep that a secret. And we also see this over in Mark nine nine, for example. There are several passages like this, by the way. Yeah, but this is I, just a few can, examples. Can yeah, I read, go ahead. Can I read Mark nine nine? Sure. Yeah. Go ahead. As they were Did coming you? down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man has had risen from the dead. Yeah, and I, I think this passage gives a little clarity because it tells us that there's a timestamp here. Um, it, it's not saying this is forever. This is a season. In other words, there's a, there's the right time for his identity to be released. But while he's still here on earth at this time, uh, that's not the right time. And so when you understand that, you, you better understand, I think, this concept of what's happening in the scriptures. Um, and what we have to remember is that throughout the scriptures, you know, there's a, what's called a historical context. And this is understanding that that there is a, a strategy that God is fulfilling his plan of redemption through the Messiah, through Christ. And, of course, they're expecting a conquering hero. Uh, they're expecting a, a king to come and conquer and you know take over and get rid of the Romans who are enslaving them and all these kinds of things. And, of course, that's not the way Jesus is coming as the Messiah. He's coming as a suffering servant, not a, a reigning uh, king. And, and because of that, there's a, a strategy involved. Um, there's another passage that kind of brings some clarity to this bill. Uh, you can see it over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 6 through 8, but really just focusing on verse 8 for, for clarity. It says, none of the rulers of this age has understood this mystery, this wisdom, this mystery of God. Um, he said, if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And of course, the crucifixion is a part of God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. And so it was God's predeterminate counsel, his will, according to Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4, 
that that the Lord be crucified. And so this is a part of of God's overall plan to bring about the crucifixion. And that was ultimately to keep his identity hidden from the Jewish people of that day, because obviously they would never have crucified someone they believed to be their own Messiah. And so keeping his identity secret was a crucial part of bringing about his plan of redemption. Now, because that's kind of an underpinning, uh, you know, strategy of God to, to hide the truth from them, um, sometimes that can cause some uh, misinterpretations in the text. And I think that's that's what we've seen from some theologians. They have read these passages uh, about God's messianic secret is sometimes what theologians refer to it as about God hiding His identity from some people and revealing it to other people. Uh, and 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 they have interpreted that to mean that God wants some people to be saved and not others. Uh, when I've been on your program before, we've talked a little bit about the belief of of Calvinistic doctrine and the concept and idea that God has elected certain individuals unilaterally before the foundation of the world, and these are the people he has chosen to effectually or irresistibly draw to himself for salvation. And, and Calvinists, I think, have used passages that have to do with the Messianic secret, this concept and idea uh, of the strategic plan of Jesus to hide his identity for a time from uh, most particularly and especially the the Jews of this day um, in order to bring about his redemptive plan. Um, and, and once people understand that, that that's what's going on in, these, in, in the pages of Scripture, then a lot of these passages, some of which we can kind of go through if you'd like— I, I would like I, that. I think— mm-hmm. Yeah, I think some of them become much more clear when you understand what God is accomplishing through them. Mm-hmm. Leighton, uh, can we at least uh, give Peter some credit with his ability to keep a secret after coming down from the mountain, f- after witnessing the transfiguration, <laughs> and he's told not to say anything to anybody? Yeah, I mean, you would you would want to go tell everybody that, <laughs> I, you know, that would be something would. that you would want to you would want to share. I, yeah. I would I would think right. And You'd then, want to brag on that to your friends for yeah. sure. And a listener just texted in, is there, isn't there a case of Jesus healing a guy and the guy just immediately tells everyone even though he wasn't supposed to? There is. Uh, that's another example of where he said, don't go tell anybody anybody you know about this yet. And, of course, he disobeyed and went and did exactly that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there's there's examples of that kind of thing happening. And, of course, God God is sovereign. He's the ruler. He's not going to be thwarted by uh, disobedient uh, people. Uh, he's he's able to uh, disappear among them. They're trying to stoning him. He you know he, he seems like he magically disappears you know from amongst them. Doesn't tell us exactly how that happened, but um, he's ha- he's able to get out of tight situations. Obviously, he is God, um, and so nothing's going to thwart his overall plan. But this is again just a part of his strategy to bring about his purpose. And I think what also has to be you know in front in full view is that the Jewish people of this day remember they they are. They are in a particular situation right now at this time in history where a good majority of them have become very self-righteous. They have become the old wineskin that can't take the new wine, so to speak, as, as Jesus describes it. They're sticks in the mud. They, they don't think they need a physician because they don't think they're really sinners. They think the Gentiles are the sinners and not them. And and so they, they, they don't know that they're really lost. And as one of my pastors, I remember saying quite often, it's sometimes it's harder to get people lost than it is to give them, get them saved because people have to realize they're lost in order to know that they need to be saved. And that was part of the problem with the Pharisees of this day and the, the Jewish leaders of this day is they didn't really think they needed to be saved. They thought they were already saved by being just a child of Abraham and following the 635 commandments and 
um, you know, doing all the the rituals and things like that. They they thought they were in right standing with Yahweh, but here they're finding out from Jesus and his teachings that they're they're really not. They're actually hardened in their rebellion. And and this is one of the reasons you'll see passages, for example, out of Luke 19. Uh, 40, and Jesus says, uh, he's speaking, and he approaches Jerusalem, speaking of, obviously, the, the, the Israelite people. He saw the city, and he wept over it. And he says, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. And so this is, again, kind of reflecting upon the fact that these these people have rejected their own Messiah and have been hardened in their rebellion, and now because of that, as a as a, a judgment against their rebellion, he is now hiding the truth from them. And this is what some scholars refer to as judicial hardening. Hmm. And this is when when God judicially, that means as an act of a judge, he hides the truth from these people so as to bring about a good purpose through them. And some, for some people, that doesn't seem like it's just, or it seems maybe some, some people think that it seems duplicitous or that seems wrong. Uh, but th- that's really what Romans 9, 10, and 11 is really discussing. And, and what Paul is trying to answer in Romans 9, 10, 11 is that you don't have any right to question the sovereign, the, the, the maker uh, the, the, who makes the pots. And, and if he wants to shape these already hardened lumps of clay into vessels that he uses for his own purpose— to cry out, crucify him, and to bring about the redemption for the world, then who are you, O oh man, to question God if he uses these already rebellious, hardened pots for his own good end? Mm. Um, and what some, like I've mentioned before, what some Calvinistic scholars have done is they've misunderstood that passage to mean that God chooses some people arbitrarily before they're ever born for salvation and others for reprobation. And that's not at all the context of what Romans 9 through 11 is talking about. The reason we know that for certain is because when you read on into chapters 10 and 11, it goes on to say that those who are hardened have not stumbled beyond recovery. Um, They may be provoked to envy and grafted back in if they leave their unbelief. And so actually it's, it's for their good that God is bringing about this redemption because even they, if they see the error of their ways and repent of their uh, unbelief, then they too can be grafted back in and saved. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, Leighton, we're going to take a break in a couple of minutes, but for somebody who might be in their car in traffic and they're trying to pay attention to everything you said, I wonder if you couldn't give like a 90-second recap on your on, on helping us understand judicial hardening, because that those sure. are words that I think people might be hearing for the first time today. Yeah, I, I think the, the example of Pharaoh, the one that that Paul gives in Romans 9 is a good example because we're familiar with Pharaoh, that God hardened his heart. What some people forget, though, is that many times Pharaoh hardened his own heart prior to God hardening him. And so God God never hardens a heart that's not already self-hardened. Okay. And so Pharaoh wasn't created to be a reprobate or a non-elect hated person from birth, like he just didn't have a choice in the matter. No, Pharaoh chose to rebel against the God of Israel, and he chose to go his own way. And God, uh, justly as a judge, judges him for his rebellion by sealing him over or strengthening him in his resolve. That literally what the word hardened means is to strengthen somebody in their resolve. And so what he's doing is giving them over to their lust. Oh, you want to 
take your inheritance and squander it. Okay, go take it. That's that's a that's a form of judicial hardening. An example I've used um, in in my studies is that of a, a police officer hiding his presence uh, when the speeders are speeding by. He's hiding his presence so that they'll continue to speed because if they know he's he's there, they'll stop speeding. But he <laughs> wants them to continue. He wants them to continue to do what they want to do. He's not causing them to speed. That would be unjust. But he's hiding his identity, his presence, so that they'll continue to do what they already want to do. That would be a form of judicial hardening or judicial blinding. It's blinding people from the truth temporarily to bring about a good purpose through their their blindness and their hardened rebellion. Mm, so good. We're talking to Dr. Leighton Flowers today about messianic secret and Jesus hiding his identity uh, for a, a period of time. Uh, if you have a question or comment, you can certainly text it over 877-933-2484. You can learn more about Leighton at Soteriology101.com. He's got a bunch of videos and amazing content there. Soteriology101.com. We'll be right back in just a minute. Hi there and welcome. If you are a new listener, we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome packet gift. Request yours today at myfaithradio.com. Welcome back to the show. I'm so glad to have Dr. Leighton Flowers as my guest today. And we were talking just before the break about judicial hardening, and this has been a good uh, time for me to learn about it. And now good questions are coming in. And Leighton, I'm going to ask you kind of a two-part question. Could Pharaoh's heart be softened? And is it possible for someone to be saved if they have been judicially hardened by God? Yeah, let me let me take the second one first because it'll help answer the first one. Um, active hardening somebody or cutting them off in their unbelief, as as Romans eleven describes the Israelites of that day, um, is actually a merciful thing. Um, and a lot of people think, how in the world is that merciful? Uh, it's much like what you read in First Corinthians when Paul tells the Corinthian people to warn the wayward brother once, warn him twice, and then cut him off and have nothing to do with them, so that you may save their soul. And wow. you may think, well, what what would cutting them off from the church? How that co- could po- how could that possibly save their soul? Well, what it, what it is is ultimately you're you're saying I'm not going to enable you in your sin. It, it's almost like those parents who have a you know 20 year old living in the basement, not following the rules, uh, getting involved in drugs and alcohol and all kinds of things, and then finally saying, um, we're not going to enable you in this lifestyle anymore. You 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 can't live here anymore and kicking them out of the house. And you may think, well, that's just cruel. That's just mean. And actually, it's a merciful thing for the parents not to enable their their son to continue in his rebellious ways while still feeding and protecting him. And that's exactly what Paul is doing to the to the wayward sinner in the Corinthian church. He's saying, cut them off from your fellowship. Don't, don't provide for them. Don't help them anymore. 
um, and, 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 and hopes that they will see the error of their ways. They'll get to the pigsty of their life, the bottom of their barrel, so to speak, see the error of their ways and come back in repentance and true repentance. But that can't happen if we continue to enable them in their sin. And it's exactly nationally speaking, that's exactly what God's doing to the nation of Israel. He's cutting them off in the rebellion so as to bring about redemption for the world. And in so doing, he brings about redemption for the barbarian Gentiles. And Paul even says, I hope that my ministry to the Gentiles will provoke the Jews to envy. So when they see those rebellious you know, it, Jewish people, uh, Israelite people, excuse me, uh, Gentile people coming to believe in Yahweh and coming to change their lives, then they may deep down recognize, hey, maybe Jesus is really who he said he was. Maybe this this Christianity thing is not just a cult like we thought. Maybe it's real. And maybe they will be provoked to envy so that they too will be saved. And so it's actually very merciful for God to cut people off in their rebellion. Um, and, and the hope would even be for Pharaoh, for example, uh, to, to harden him so as to bring about his, his the, the, the plague so as to demonstrate his power of all the false gods of Egypt. Um, and yes, he could have uh, you know, softened his heart instead of chasing after the Israelites and ended up drowning in the Red Sea. Um, presumably, he could have you know, uh, repented and turned and humbled himself. But obviously, that's not the way the story ends. But that doesn't mean he didn't have the uh, uh, opportunity or the ability uh, to, to humble himself, soften his heart, and leave his unbelief. Leighton, when you talk about cutting people off in their rebellion, it's kind of a, a loaded statement with lifestyle issues that are going on today. While these people in certain lifestyle issues are acting righteous while living a life of sin. Yeah, very much. I mean, Romans 1 talks about this, that that God will, you know, he won't strive with men forever. Um, he, he's not obligated to. Um, you know, he is a merciful God. He's a long-suffering God. He's very patient with people, but he he doesn't he doesn't strive with men forever. And the Bible does does describe a time in which he will eventually give men over to the lust of their flesh and their own desires to let them go their own way. And in doing so, they they experience uh, the full weight of their sin, and many of them end up in addictions and hardships and all kinds of issues, uh, many of which uh, your listeners are probably aware of in their own lives or in the lives of those around them who have fallen into uh, deep uh, addictions and sins. Uh, sins end up bringing, uh, you know, not only the eternal wrath, but temporary uh, pain and hardship. And so oftentimes that leads to circumstances that do soften the heart, that that turn people back uh, to God. That's why you see so much ministry done in prisons and uh, in places, uh, rehab facilities and other places, because these people are at the bottom of their barrel and they are, they are ready for uh, help, and they are needing help, and they're looking for help. The, the harder people to save, it's one of the reasons that Jesus said it's, it's difficult for a, a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of heaven. A wealthy man is known to have all of the, the spoils of life and everything's together, and he doesn't really need anybody in his mind. And so oftentimes it's, it's when we reach that, that point of, of hardship and, and angst and hurt that we, we look up. And, and we start to, 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 to grasp after whatever we can find, and that's when people oftentimes find God is in those darkest times. Mm-hmm. Dr. Leighton Flowers is my guest. You can learn more about him at Soteriology101.com. So Leighton, in Matthew eleven twenty five, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Oh, what does this mean? And why would God be hiding truth from the wise and intelligent? 
Yeah, this is a perfect example of judicial hardening and the messianic secret that we were just talking about. Again, some people misinterpret this passage to say, well, God, you know, arbitrarily chose some people to be saved and other people to be damned before they were ever born. And that's not what this verse is about. He's he's talking about Jesus is saying, God, I thank you that you've revealed this to people like Peter, who has maybe a third grade education. You've revealed it to fishermen, the blue collar workers, the no names uh, that nobody looks to as important people. Um, and you've hid it from the lawyers and the politicians. Uh, you've hid it from the wise and learned uh, ones with the robes and the, you know, the flactories hanging off their head and all these, you know, uh, things on them declaring that they are the ones to be looked to as the leaders. God's not choosing them to be the apostles that bring the truth to the world. He's chosen the lowly fishermen to do this. And so uh, Jesus is merely saying what we know throughout the scripture, that God chooses the weak to shame the wise. He chooses the lowly. He chooses Gideon's army after he's pared down Gideon's army to a very small number. Uh, He chooses the boy out in the shepherd field instead of one of the older brothers to be the king. Uh, he chooses the second-born uh, mama's boy instead of the hunter firstborn uh, that would normally have been chosen uh, to to carry the promise. God, God tends to choose the weaker vessel so that he receives the glory for bringing about his purpose and uh, his redemption through uh, these, these earthly vessels that he's chosen. And so in the same way, Jesus is sa- simply praising God. God, thank you for choosing the lowly, the 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 weak in order to bring about your purpose of redemption. Hmm. So good. All right, Leighton, we're going to take another break here in a, in, a, in a minute. But in John 12, verse 39 and 40, it says, for this reason, they could not believe. And so Isaiah, I think, said it again. He said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. Why would God blind their eyes and harden their hearts, making them unable to believe? Doesn't Jesus want everyone to believe? He does want everyone to believe. Um, but this, is, again, is an example of judicial hardening. This is a temporary hardening, as even Romans chapter 11 describes it in, in, in reference to Israel. And so notice it does say, for this reason, they could not believe. So uh, this is where I think the Calvinists have got it wrong, because they, they think that the reason people can't believe is because of a natural condition they're born into from this fallen nature that they, they adopted from Adam. And what this passage seems to be saying, no, this is unique to the hardened Israelites because of their rebellion. And God is now blinding them judicially in their rebellion, hiding the truth from them in order to bring about his purpose of redemption. Again, it just shows you how these kinds of passages can be kind of plucked from their context mm-hmm. and, and applied to a particular sociological viewpoint. And and when you back away and you look at the whole historical context of what's happening to Israel and how Israel is contrasted with the Gentiles, um, then you begin to realize the purpose that God has in blinding the Israelites of this day in order to bring about a redemptive plan through them. Mm-hmm. Leighton, are you having fun, or does this feel like work? No. <laughs> I love talking about theology. I'm kind of a theology geek, so I do I, this in my pastime. So, yeah, I'm is, so glad. This is, because... this is my hobby. Some people like doing golf. You know, I, I'll sit around and read theology books for my, my fun, so yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm loving it. Oh, fantastic. We'll take a little break. Dr. Layton Flowers is my guest. You can learn more about him at soteriology101.com. If you have a question or a comment, we're talking about the the hiddenness that Jesus has and the judicial hardening uh, that we see in Scripture. If you have a question or comment, 877-933-2484. 
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. I hope you've had a good day, and if you're just climbing into your car or flipping on the radio, thank you for tuning to uh, my show. This is Bill Arnold, and my guest today is Dr. Leighton Flowers, and I love this discussion we're having. We're talking about judicial hardening, which is something I haven't really thought about too much, and also talking about the way Jesus, during his ministry at times, would hide his, his divinity. He would tell people not to go tell others about him, and yet we thought, well, I thought that's the whole purpose of him coming, was to tell everybody. So... That is our topic today. I just, uh, one of my listeners, uh, Leighton, said that I took soteriology at Trinity, but I think it was called Sin and Salvation. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, I'm, I'm teacher there at Trinity uh, Seminary, and uh, I, I believe that may be the name of one of the courses. Okay, awesome. And another guest, another listener said, you should have, uh, Leighton should become a regular guest. Very, very interesting, so. Mm. Well, they, that's very kind. Thank you. Thank you. Um and then, again, someone just wanted to know your website. It's soteriology101.com. And another question that came in, can you explain why Jesus continually referred to himself in the third person as the Son of Man, and if this has to do with him not wanting to reveal himself? I think that you're on to something there. I think there is a way in which he sometimes uses language that's a little cryptic, um, that that kind of gets into the concept of of the use of parables as well that we see in Mark chapter four, and there is a, a way in which uh, God speaks at times or Christ speaks at times that seems a little cryptic or uh, even the use of it, the word parable in the original language literally means riddle, um, and it, and it, sometimes it seems like he's being confusing by using this this kind of language, uh, and and so yes, that very well could be why Jesus uses that kind of language. Mm-hmm. If I can, Leighton, let me read a passage out of Mark chapter four. You just mentioned Mark chapter four, and in these two verses, ten and ten, eleven, and twelve go this way. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, "The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that." They may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Ooh, explain that one. Yeah, this is, again, this is, a, this is the way in which God may harden people in their rebellion. In other words, like I mentioned before in the illustration of the police officer hiding his car, um, the use of riddles would be a way of hiding uh, his identity. Uh, and so by using riddles, he is, uh, in, in a sense, keeping the Pharisees in the dark, uh, at least for a time. And then what it, no, it notice, it goes down later in that chapter. If you'll read their bill, uh, verses 33 and 34, he kind of concludes after he explains the parable. Uh, he, he concludes with the, those two verses. Mm-hmm. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. So notice that he's getting his disciples, the, the, the weak, the, the fishermen that we talked about earlier. And when he's with the wise and learned, he's speaking in riddles where they can't quite understand what he's talking about. But when he gets with his own apostles, his disciples, he explains to them what he's talking about so that they'll be prepared 
for his resurrection. Because remember, uh, in John 12, it says that when he's raised up, then he will draw all people to himself. So right now, uh, while he's in his ministry here on earth before the crucifixion, he's not trying to draw all people to himself. He hasn't sent the gospel to go out to all people. He's actually telling people not, not to send it out yet. It's not the right time. And so it's only after he's resurrected and he's uh, and he's he's ascending into heaven just before he ascends, as we read in Acts chapter one, verse eight, he ascends before he ascends. What does he do? He commissions the gospel to go be preached to all creation. So it's not until he ascends that he sends the gospel to draw all people to himself. While he's here on earth, he uses parables or riddles or sometimes cryptic kind of language in order to keep his identity secret in order to accomplish a purpose. A purpose. But you'll you'll notice even in that text, it says, lest they hear, understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. In other words, they, they could be forgiven. Um, they, 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 God wants them to be forgiven. But this is a temporary blinding or a temporary hardening, as I mentioned in Romans chapter 11, as Paul says, this is a temporary blinding of Israel, and it's for a specific redemptive good for all of humanity. And so he, he's not just arbitrarily doing this because he doesn't love some people. He's, it's quite the opposite, in fact. It's because he does love them that he's cutting them off in rebellion to bring about redemption through their rebellious actions. Mm-hmm. Leighton, how, how does God harden people's hearts? Well, I mean, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, we don't know exactly the means that God may have hardened Pharaoh, for example. Um, you, you know, he could use human means. I know in the, uh, you know, in the movie uh, with Charles uh, Charleston Heston, I believe it is, you know, uh, you know, the Pharaoh is hardened by a, a, one of the, the prostitutes, one of the women in, in his, uh, you know, in his uh, uh, mansion there whispering in his ear, you know, are you going to let Moses outshine you? Are you going to, are you going to let him get away with this? You know, and, and she's the one who's kind of used to, to keep him in his rebellion. And uh, we, we don't know all the ways in which God may uh, harden or blind people from the truth. Uh, the use of parables is obviously one such way that the Bible reads reveals to us. Um, but we don't know all the secret uh, ways of God. We, we know that there's a spirit of stupor spoken of in uh, Romans chapter 11, that he gives them a spirit of stupor, um, eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear, uh, which is not a condition from birth. Notice it's not something you're just born like that and they can't help it like some uh, theological systems would teach. But it, it is a, it's a, a, a something they grow into because of their rebellious actions. And, and it's a part of being judged. So getting a spirit of stupor, whatever that is and whatever that may look like, it's not just a natural condition of everybody from birth, but it, it is something that can become as a judgment upon you if you continue to refuse to listen to the voice of God. Mm-hmm. Leighton, I don't mean to go back to something you've already talked about, but you know, you, you explain something and then you start talking again and then my brain can't settle. <laughs> so thanks no, a lot. That's Layton. why we have these discussions. That's yes, why we, we can bounce all over the place. And I got to go back to Romans 9 um, because Pharaoh, Paul reminds us that Pharaoh had, had been hardened. But how is it that God would harden Pharaoh and then still hold him accountable for what he did? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's really the question that Paul is answering in Romans 9. Um, the, the, the interlocutor is he sometimes referred to as by theologian. Mm -hmm. He's the objector in the mind of Paul. He's, he's, he's a literary, uh, way of speaking where you anticipate the objector in, in your audience and that, that interlocutor, that objector 
is that hardened Israelite saying, well, if, if God, if my unrighteousness brings about your righteousness, which is exactly what he says in chapter three, by the way, because it's the same interlocutor there as it is in chapter nine, he's just bringing it back up again. It's the same Jewish interlocutor who's ultimately saying, if my unrighteousness brings about your glory, and in other words, Pharaoh could say that if, if my, my unrighteousness of holding the slaves brings about your glory through these plagues, then why are you to blame me for that? You know, and the Israelites are being hardened in the same way that Pharaoh's hardened. That's what's so interesting about the the foreshadowing of the scripture is that Moses is kind of like the Christ-like figure being for, foreshadowed in, in the Exodus. But Pharaoh is also a foreshadowing of people who are hardened. Well, ironically, the people who are hardened to bring about the second Passover is not Pharaoh, but the Israelites themselves are being hardened. Um, and so God is hardening Pharaoh to bring about the first Passover in the mm-hmm. same way he hardens Israel to bring about the second Passover. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what's so beautiful about that, to be able to see the the dichotomy of that and to see how the parallel, I, I should say, of those two stories. Yeah. Uh, Leighton, you, you used the term interlocker twice. And of course, I know what it means, but I'm going to let you explain it. Yeah, with yeah, with Rosie's laughing at me because she knows that yeah, I absolutely. that I have no idea what it means. <laughs> well, it's in the in the diatribe and the the figure of speech. Um, it, it's it's where you anticipate what your your uh, reader might say in response to what you're writing. Because obviously, when you're writing it down, um, you don't have the person right there to to engage with you to ask you questions, but you can t- anticipate what they might say. And that's exactly the way Paul writes often in his letters. He he anticipates the objection of his reader. And that that interlocutor, that objector, is is often is what uh, scholars often refer to that that person in the mind of Paul who would be objecting to what he's saying. And and some people, like Calvinist friends of ours that we disagree with, obviously, they they think that the interlocutor is objecting against, you know, reprobation, that God chooses some people for salvation and others for damnation. But that's not that in our mind, that's not what the interlocutor is even objecting to. The interlocutor is, like I said, someone objecting to the idea that God would use the elect Israelites, the good people. He's using them to bring about redemption through their hardened rebellion, just like he did Pharaoh. And, and God, how dare you do that for the barbarian Gentiles? Um, we're, we're your elect people. We're your chosen ones. And, and Paul's pushing back that against that, that objector and saying, uh, who are you, O oh man, to question God if he wants to use you in your rebellion and, and cut you off in that rebellion to bring about his purpose of redemption through you, just like he did with Pharaoh, then who are you to talk back to God if he does this? Um, that that's the interlocutor or the or the objector in the mind of Paul. I think that's exactly the way I would have explained it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know you would have. Oh, thank you, Leighton, for thank you for encouraging me. Um, so I see people with a lot of hard hearts, and I I see them hardening their heart without God's intervention. So how what's the difference between someone who might just be pushing God out of their life and then God hardening someone's heart. Well, the the self hardening um, is is when you or any individual chooses to reject the things of God. Um, in other words, that's their own free decision. Um, in in the speeder analogy that I was using earlier, the speeders are speeding by their own free will. I got you. Uh, God's uh, the the police officer is not causing them to speed, but by hiding his identity, his presence, he allows them to continue to speed and to continue to do what they want to do. 
Um, and so, uh, you know, God is not causing people to sin. The Bible says he doesn't even tempt men to sin in James chapter one, and that pride and lust are not from the father, but from the world in first John two sixteen. And so we can't blame God for when people sin. I think that would be a, a gross, uh, you know, slam against his, you know, his character and his holiness and fly in the face of so many passages of scripture that say God has nothing to do with, with sin. Now, he obviously allows us to make our own free choices, and when we choose to rebel and go our own way, then even though he's patient with us, the Scripture says, he's long-suffering, holding out his, his hands to us all day long, weeping over Israel even, uh, all, all this kind of imagery is, is seen throughout the Scriptures of God's desire for people to do other than what they end up doing when they rebel. But he, he has every right as the sovereign, as the judge, to use somebody who's already rebellious in their rebellion to bring about his purpose and his plan through their rebellion. But that doesn't make him unjust. That doesn't make him implicit within their, their, their decisions to sin. That, that's all on them. Um, and so it, for us, we, we can't see the heart of a man. We don't know what's going on. We don't know if God's hardening somebody or not hardening somebody because we only see the external uh, fruits. Um, that, that, that's only the only way we know it is if God tells us. And of course, as in the scriptures, we're able to see this is taking place because of Paul's letter and because he's explaining it to us under inspiration that this is what's happening. This is how God is bringing about his plan and uh, of redemption. But we don't know that today. So I, I always um, kind of really uh, shrink back from those who are trying to, you know, even modern day people who are trying to say, oh, God's hardening, you know, so-and-so's heart, you know, Donald Trump's heart or God's hardening, you know, Joe Biden's heart or this, this, and this. Well, you don't, you don't know that, that God's doing that. I mean, there's no way to know that. Um, he, it might be that that these people, these leaders are acting freely and they're just acting in, in rebellion against the things of God. It may not be anything that God's actually doing. Uh, it could be, and we may find out, you know, when we get to heaven, yes, God was working through uh, one of the national leaders to bring about a purpose through their rebellious actions. And, and uh, you know, he has every right to do that, obviously. Mm-hmm. Leighton, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need a break just to figure out a way to formulate my next question. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to need all 90 seconds to see if I can come up with phrasing this question correctly so you can answer it. Dr. Leighton Flowers is my guest. You can learn more about Leighton at Soteriology101.com. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. I'm back with Dr. Layton Flowers. So glad to have him on the show. Today we've been talking about Oh, little things like judicial hardening and the messianic secret and why Jesus would tell his followers not to let others know who he was until a certain time. So, Leighton, I'm just, we go back to Pharaoh and and there's a question that came in from a listener and I'm going to try to embellish the question a little bit. I hope I don't wreck the question, but could it could it be that God knew Pharaoh wasn't going to repent anyway? So God, knowing that, used his his unrepentance 
the question I will add to that is, I think a lot of people think that 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 Pharaoh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart so he could never come to salvation, but it wasn't a salvation issue. It was more of a, will I let my people go issue? Exactly. Yeah, and that, that's the that's another uh, problem that sometimes people have in in exegesis and in interpreting the text is that they'll take things about nations and make them about individuals. They'll take things about hardening somebody for a, a purpose of service and, and redemption and take it about hardening people, you know, unilaterally from birth uh, for, for damnation. And, and that's not what the context is. And so, yes, there is a sense in which we can know what, you know, God knows what's going to happen. For example, Jesus knew that, that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crows. Um, and so God can use somebody in their already rebellious ways, mm-hmm. but there, there could be circumstances, for example, maybe after the sixth plague, I think it's the first plague that it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart versus it saying he hardened his own heart. It's the sixth plague. Maybe, maybe after the Nile turns to blood, that's enough to convince even Pharaoh <laughs> to finally say, okay, yeah. fine, let him go. Yeah. And God doesn't want him to let, be let go just yet because he has other false gods of Egypt to show up. You right. know, he, he's got to show his power for all the false gods of Egypt. And each one of those plagues, uh, most scholars think represented one of the false, false gods of Egypt in order to demonstrate his power over all these false gods. And so God had a purpose in blinding him in his rebellion circumstances, whatever it may have been that God used to keep him in his rebellion for a time in order to accomplish a purpose through him. But, but again, keep in mind, it's, it's not God causing Pharaoh to sin. It's God giving Pharaoh over to his already rebellious ways so as to demonstrate his power and his redemption through Pharaoh. Um, and when, once you keep that in mind, then these kinds of circumstances, these issues, I think, become a lot more clear. Mm-hmm. All right, Leighton, maybe you can defend this uh, comment that came in. Uh, Leighton mentioned that Jesus didn't send out people to witness until he had risen. What about the 70 who were sent out and were able to do miracles as they shared the news of Jesus? Yeah, and there are examples where, um, you know, well, we have this, you know, especially in the synoptics, and we have a lot of different uh, questions when it comes to the uh, uh, textual criticism about what's happening in what time and what order, uh, because the book of John has it in one order and the book of Mark has it in a different order of what's happening when. Um, and so, yes, you do have uh, different examples of what God, when God's trying to accomplish this or trying to accomplish that. Um, and so I'm speaking in more general, you know, the 30,000 foot view of mm-hmm. what's happening within the time that Jesus is here on earth. And it's, it's not until he is raised up that the Bible says he will draw all people to himself. But he, for, he comes first to the Jew. He comes to his own, and his own received him not, out of John chapter 1. And so these are examples of where the, the, the truth is being sent first to the nation of Israel. Remember, it's not until uh, later that, you know, when Peter has that dream uh, before sending the gospel to Cornelius with the white sheet that let, that's let down, uh, the Apostle Paul is called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. It's not until then that we see the, the message kind of shift from the Jews to the Gentile nations. And so some of that is a reflection of that, that shifting that's taking place, uh, the sending of the gospel that goes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Mm-hmm. Leighton, why is this doctrine helpful? Why should we even be talking about it? 
Well, because the, the obviously because the Bible talks about it, and anything that the the Bible teaches is going to be helpful. But the reason, the one of the reasons that I really highlight it on my broadcast and in my books, is is because I think these doctrines have been overlooked and have not been properly exegeted and understood, and have led people to false conclusions. It's one of the reasons that I've I've kind of become known for confronting a belief that I used to hold to, you know, five point Calvinism because I didn't understand this historical context of judicial hardening and the messianic secret. Um, once I think one understands these concepts, the, the whole doctrine of the Calvinistic doctrine doesn't even have a, a, a really a place to stand anymore because Romans nine can be explained from the, the vantage point that I've already mentioned uh, these parables and, and the, you know, God revealing it to some people and not to others. All of those passages make sense within the context of, of judicial hardening and God bringing about his purpose through the, the blinding of Israel. Um, and then the whole, the whole quote-unquote, five points of Calvinism kind of fall apart. And so one of the benefits of these kinds of doctrines, uh, of understanding these doctrines rightly, biblically, of course, is what we would argue, is, is, is not to walk away with a false doctrine or a false teaching or a false understanding of God's intentions or his character. So when people walk away reading Romans 9, for example, thinking that God unilaterally picks some people for salvation and some people for damnation before they're ever born, where ultimately they have no real choice in the matter because God's ultimately determined whether you're going to believe or not, then I think that that's a really bad conclusion to come to because I don't think that's what Paul's teaching in the context of these verses. And so the reason good doctrine is so important and, and holding to right doctrine is so important is that coming to false conclusions about what the text is talking about can lead to false doctrines and lead to false understandings of who God is and and therefore impact how we believe about who God is and how we evangelize, how we do apologetics. And uh, ultimately, our methodology is driven by our theology. And so it's good to have the right theology. Mm-hmm. Well, let me just ask this, because we're getting light on time, so we're going to run out of time here. But I appreciate this discussion a lot. I've, I feel like I've learned a lot. I've taken a couple of pages of notes. Unfortunately, I can't read my own handwriting, so they're not worth a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe I'll well, be able to I, decipher later, but hard to say. Well, I will say, you know, on, on the podcast, I have a broadcast, as you know, of called course. Sociology 101. And we, we do have several videos uh, that go through this a little bit more in depth with a lot of citations. Um, we also have guests on that, that talk through this that are that are experts in the field. Some of them I've had conversations with people who are, you know, uh, you know, scholars in the original languages. For example, I remember talking to Michael Brown, uh, who has, uh, excuse me, uh, yeah, Michael Brown, who, who is a Hebrew scholar, mm -hmm. and he's the one who, who really taught me, and I helped to learn that the original in the original Hebrew, the word hardening literally means to to strengthen one in their resolve. Um, and so I, I'm 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 a learner myself, and so okay. when I have guests on my broadcast, I get I get these these great insights, and then I'm able to come on your show and sound smart. So that, that's <laughs> the kind of thing that I yeah. get to do. So yeah, uh, and then in my books as well, uh, the God's provision for all, and then also uh, the Potter's promise. Both both of those books touch on these topics in in one way or another. And so for your listeners who want to dive a little bit deeper than what we have time for on this program, you can definitely go uh, watch the broadcast or or get those books on Amazon and and kind of dive deep. Mm -hmm. All right, we have about ninety seconds left, so here's a softball question: Why did Jesus have to die? <laughs> <laughs> well. 
that, that's that's not a softball question. Uh, I, I know it's that, not. I know it's not. Well, yeah, yeah. You know, you know what I talked about because oh, yeah. that 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 is the heart of the gospel. That is the heart of of our belief about what we call propitiation. Mm-hmm. Is that that God takes our place? That He dies for uh, for our sins. That He takes. You know, we deserve to to perish for our sins, but He chooses to take our place, and so He He's the propitiation, the means of healing, uh, much like the serpent lifted in the desert. Uh, if if you looked to that serpent lifted in the desert, you would be healed from the snake venom. Uh, it's that same look that we have on the you know all all of the the pharmacies. It still has that that snake on a pole because that's a that's a means of healing. Well, you're not going to be healed just because he lifted the pole, but you have to look to the provision of healing in faith. And so too, Christ was lifted for the sins of the world. But our responsibility is to look to him for healing, to look to him in faith. And so he he died for our sins, but not everyone will be saved because not everyone looks to him in faith. Mm-hmm. And so that's why the call of the gospel is the good news is he has died for all men. But the, the, the responsibility of the gospel, the gospel calls you to believe, to trust in him for your salvation. And that is the only way for anyone to be saved. You can't be saved through Muhammad or through Confucius or through any other, uh, you know, quote unquote, savior that's offered by the other world religions. Christ is the only way. And so you must look to him for salvation. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Leighton, thank you so much for coming on the show. I have so much fun when you come on. Oh, it's my pleasure, Bill. Anytime. All right. I'm glad you said that because I've got that recorded now. So I'll use that against you. (laughs) (laughs) Have a great night. Thanks, Leighton. God bless. Bye-bye. Dr. Leighton Flowers is my guest. You can learn more about his ministry at soteriology101.com. That's our show for the day. Thank you so much for spending time with me. I've loved being with you. Have a great night and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.